did James Baldwin and William F. Buckley end up on a stage together in 1965 at Cambridge University to debate one another on race? Nicholas Bucola will be here to talk about his book, The Fire is Upon Us. What's it like growing up Black and gay in the South? Poet and now memoirist Saeed Jones will be here to talk about his book, How We Fight for Our Lives. Concepcion de Leon will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Nicholas Bucola is here in the studio to talk about his new book, The Fire is Upon Us, James Baldwin, William F. Buckley Jr., and the Debate Over Race in America. His two previous books were The Essential Douglas and Abraham Lincoln and Liberal Democracy. Nicholas, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. All right. This is a change of subject for you. Why this book? This book emerged through Baldwin. I was invited to write an essay about Baldwin, and I devoted a few months to just reading everything I could get my hands on. And then I dug into the YouTube archives of all these videos of Baldwin, and I found the debate with Buckley, and I became transfixed. It was just such a dramatic moment of these two men who embodied movements in a way, and, and they, to have them on this international stage clashing, I was just, I sort of became mildly obsessed with it. And so I uh, wrote that essay uh, using the debate as a framing device. And as I worked on the essay, I kept thinking, there's a, there's a book in here. And then that book kind of grew and grew and grew to a kind of joint intellectual biography. They're born about a year apart from each other. And so I thought I could sort of weave their intellectual biographies against the backdrop of the, the rise of the civil rights and conservative movements. I have to say, you know, a word in favor of YouTube, all of these things are on there. And you can go online and just Google Baldwin-Buckley debate, and it comes right up. I just want to play a quick clip from that debate. This is Baldwin. We have a civil rights bill now. We had an amendment, the 15th Amendment, nearly 100 years ago. I hate to sound again like an Old Testament prophet, but if the amendment was not honored then, I don't have any reason for believing the civil rights bill will be honored now. And after all, one's been there since before, you know, a lot of other people got there. If one has got to prove one's title to the land, isn't 400 years enough? 400 years, at least three wars. Later on, we'll play another clip from Buckley. But let's start with something you just mentioned, Nicholas, which is that these two men were born only 15 months apart in New York City could not have had more different circumstances in terms of their births and upbringing. Let's start with James Baldwin. Baldwin's born in August 1924 in Harlem, and he's the oldest of nine children. And Baldwin describes his childhood as being one that's really marked by domination. Um, His experience is one in which he has, there's all sorts of individual people in his life, police officers, landladies, landlords, that he sort of sees as as enforcing kind of boundaries on his his growth as as a human being. And he sees his parents victimized by racial oppression, by economic anxiety, by a lack of economic opportunity. And so Baldwin um, describes growing up in Harlem and his his autobiographical writings in a really powerful way of of really a, a set of circumstances in which he feels so limited as a human being. And he has to try to figure out a way to find some modicum of power to fight back against this oppression. So Baldwin is somebody who eventually kind of finds his lever, as he calls it, in language and words. He's obsessed with books, you know, uh, from a very young age. He's reading everything he can get his hands on, trying to find ways in which to make sense of his experience through books. And then he begins writing at a very young age and, and actually devotes himself to writing as often as he can, and he ends up becoming a young minister. His father was a lay Pentecostal preacher in Harlem storefront churches, and so Baldwin becomes a young minister at the age of 14 and is really taken by the power of language to connect him to his congregation. And although he leaves the church by 17, he he remains a preacher his entire life, including the night he debates Buckley. It really is a sermon. Mm -hmm. Tell us, what was his formal education like? So Baldwin was somebody who, you know, he says that he was not the best of students, but that he, you know, because he had a hard time staying interested in a lot of the things he was learning in school. So in a lot of ways, he was an autodidact, but he uh, had the opportunity. He had a couple of really important teachers in his life, and those teachers encouraged him to apply for a program at DeWitt Clinton High School. And he he went to DeWitt Clinton, which, of course, is this you know storied place that's produced a, all sorts of important intellectual and political figures. And so that experience was important because Baldwin at DeWitt Clinton 
Clinton was able to uh, work for the the high school literary magazine and had some outlets for his creative uh, abilities. But he was somebody who did not have an opportunity to go to college. So in many ways, you know, you sort of you, Bald, people who are familiar with Baldwin's writings assume that he has some sort of you know elite education, but but in fact he didn't. I mean, he was somebody who was largely self-educated and uh, was really just a, a student, you know, from you know a very early age till you know the day he died. All right, that's a good moment to just pivot quickly to Buckley because we associate him so much with the institutions that he attended, of course, God and Man at Yale. But let's start with his birth in New York City. Buckley is, you know, as I say at the beginning of the book, uh, he may as well have been born on a different planet, you know, the same city, but may may as well have been a different planet. Buckley is somebody who is born into immense wealth. So Buckley's father is somebody who made uh, and lost and regained fortunes in the real estate and oil businesses. His mother is a comes from old money, a proud daughter of the Confederacy. So I, you know, I say that you know that his father had new money, his mother had old money. The key word there is money, and they use that that money to provide their their ten children with a, a very rich upbringing in a lot of ways, and especially educationally. Ten children? Yeah, there were ten. There were ten. So Buckleys. they both came from very large families. They did. Indeed. Interesting. It's one thing they have in common. The Buckleys had a, an estate in Sharon, Connecticut, known as Great Elm, 47-acre estate, and they had a, an elaborate homeschooling for their, their children. So every subject under the sun, they had live-in tutors that were there full-time. They brought in part-time tutors to cover every other subject. So the Buckleys were really devoted to education, and, and they were especially devoted to teaching their children a particular worldview. And so the Buckleys were taught a kind of, they called it individualism, but it was really a kind of elitism. Um, they were taught to be very suspicious of any form of collectivism, socialism, communism, and the, the New Deal policies of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But they were also taught to be very suspicious of democracy. Um, they were taught that some people are fit to rule, others are fit to be ruled, and they were among those who were fit to rule, of course. And so uh, Buckley really, he never really desires to become his father. He doesn't want to follow him into business, but he really wants to devote his life to defending the worldview that his father taught him and his mother taught him. And so in that hierarchical household where they're, te- they're taught these values of hierarchy, those values were thoroughly racialized as one of the key themes of the book. And so Buckley's racial politics in many ways, you know, are, emerge at a very young age and he sustains those throughout his life. So it's interesting that both Buckley and Baldwin, for very different reasons, are suspicious of certain aspects of American democracy. That's true. That's true. And it's it's these moments, you know, in the in the book when I say there's a kind of surprising, there's some surprising overlaps where, you know, Baldwin and Buckley have, have the suspicion of liberalism. They have some suspicion of democracy. They have some suspicion of the capacity of law to, you know, to bring about social change. But, you know, those moments where there there's overlaps, there's, of course, very different reasons why they take those positions. And so I think, but in that overlap, we can, we can learn something about our politics and also in the, the reasoning that they, you know, both of them use to arrive at those conclusions can really help us make sense of our political moment. I mean, is it in those moments of odd alignment that the tension is greatest in terms of their differences? I think that's true. I mean, I think maybe not, you know, there, there's definitely a lot of tensions, you know, just running through uh, th- this story, but I think that those moments are, you know, really fascinating. I mean, one example is that Baldwin and Buckley are both great critics of Northern hypocrisy on race. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, they will often say, you know, that the one line that's used is the Jim Crowism of the North is just simply more sophisticated. Baldwin would say that sort of thing and Buckley would say that sort of thing. Of course, Buckley's point was he would say that to get Northerners to lay off of the South and Baldwin would say that to get all of us to lay into the North, right? And so uh, those moments, I think, are, are especially powerful to think about, okay, why is it that Baldwin is looking at somebody, you know, particular politician that he really does not trust. And Buckley's looking at that same politician and does not trust that person. They have these radically different reasons for that distrust. And I think that's that's really informative for us. All right. Let's jump from their childhood circumstances right to 1965, the year in which this debate, the subject of your book, The Fire is Upon Us, takes place. Where is James Baldwin at this point in his life and career, 1965? Baldwin's really at the height of his fame. So Baldwin had published his first novel in 1955. And he he had published by then three novels: uh, Go Tell on the Mountain, Giovanni's Room, and Another Country. So he established himself as a fiction writer, but he'd also then published several essay collections. And in 1963, The Fire Next Time is published, and that's that's really a book that I mean, Baldwin's star was already ascending, but that that book sort of sent Baldwin to the height of literary fame. I mean, so he's among the most famous writers in the world at that time. And Baldwin's connection to the civil rights movement was was always a complicated one. I mean, he describes himself as a witness. I mean, his first interactions with the Jim Crow South are as a journalist. You know, he goes down to the South to cover what's happening, the, the Black Liberation 
liberation struggle for particular magazines and publications. And so Baldwin says, my job is to write it all down. But he, of course, feels you know this sense of obligation to be go beyond writing it all down. Of course, his journalism always has a kind of normative dimension to it. But he, he says, you know, he, he spends a lot of his life as what he calls a transatlantic commuter living in, in Europe and living in the U.S. But he feels a sense of obligation to, to engage in the struggle. And so by 63, he's kind of identified as a kind of spokesman. He didn't like that label at all. He didn't like most labels. But he, he really wants to, he's engaged in this, that both through his fiction and nonfiction writing, what he's really trying to do is provide his readers with a sense of what the world looks like through the eyes of, of a variety of people in the South and also elsewhere in the country who are in the midst of this struggle to change the country. So that's really what Baldwin is up to. So at that moment in 65 at, at Cambridge, Baldwin is internationally famous. So those students that are packed into that union debating hall, they're there, really there to see Baldwin because Buckley hadn't quite achieved international fame yet. All right. Let's talk about William F. Buckley. Where is he in 1965 in terms of his career? So Buckley by 65 is uh, second only to Barry Goldwater in terms of a sort of face of the American conservative movement. And Buckley had played really this outsized role in shaping what we now call the the conservative movement. So Buckley in 1955 starts National Review magazine, which the idea of the magazine was to try to do what progressive magazines had done in their first half of the 20th century. Magazines like The Nation and The New Republic had done so much to, to sort of shape the American left. And so Buckley has this idea that there's not really anything that we could call a, a conservative movement, a coherent mm-hmm. conservative movement in 55. So he has this idea to, to use a magazine to bring folks together, a uh, coalition together. And so he he f- founds National Review and very and right at the same moment he's founding National Review, the civil rights movement, the latest phase in the civil rights struggle is, is occurring. The lynching of Emmett Till, the reaction to that, uh, the arrest of Rosa Parks, the Montgomery bus boycott. So Buckley is very consciously trying to shape a conservative movement and he has to make a lot of decisions about how the conservative movement should react to the black liberation struggle. How influential is the National Review in 1965? What's the circulation like and who's reading it? The National Review is is a really powerful magazine in in by by sixty five. I mean, it's a magazine like a lot of magazines that struggles over the years. You know, in the, that first decade. But really, the the role that National Review plays, I think, is is you know, Buckley kind of establishes himself as a sort of gatekeeper for the the movement. He's trying to sort of, as as one of uh, my colleagues puts it, edit conservatism, figure out who should be part of the coalition and who should be left out. And so he you know writes certain folks out of the movement, like Ayn Rand, and eventually you know Robert Welch. And the John Birch Society. So Buckley is is really playing this role. People know that the magazine has a sort of outsized role in kind of shaping the movement and figuring out who's allowed to participate and who's not. And so the influence of National Review is, I think, you know, by 65, there's no question, it is the most recognized conservative organ in the country. And, and definitely, although Buckley did not get to play the role that he hoped to play in the Goldwater campaign, he hoped to be a kind of liaison between the conservative intellectual community and the, and the campaign. But he, he still is playing a kind of informal role as as a sort of somebody who's promoted. He's a promoter of ideas. He's a popularizer of, of conservative ideas. Uh, as one of his biographers calls him, the St. Paul of the conservative movement. He's really an evangelist for ideas. He's not a, an originator of ideas, but he's a he's very good at spreading the ideas. Right. He's not even an originator in this particular debate. We'll get to that. Let's just hear quickly a clip of Buckley from this debate. The trouble in America where the Negro community is concerned is a very complicated one. Uh, I urge those of you who have uh, a, a who have uh, an actual rather than a purely ideologized interest in the problem uh, to read the book Beyond the Melting Pot by Professor Glazer, also co-author of The Lonely Crowd, a prominent Jewish uh, intellectual, who points to the fact uh, that the situation uh, in America where the Negroes are concerned is extremely complex as a result of an unfortunate conjunction of two factors. One uh, is the dreadful efforts to perpetuate discrimination by many individual American citizens as a result of their lack of that final and ultimate concern which some people are truly trying to agitate the other, uh, is as a result of the failure of the Negro community itself to make certain exertions Uh, which were made by other minority groups during the American experience. Interesting you mentioned Barry Goldwater earlier because Barry Goldwater, Strom Thurmond, both of them were original choices to be the person to debate Baldwin. What happened with it with them, and and how did it end up being William F. Buckley? That was one of the first puzzles to solve: was how did this happen in the first place? And there there really wasn't 
any detailed account that I was able to find in the existing literature of like, how did these two guys end up there that night? So really, and it kind of happened by accident in a lot of ways. The union uh, was contacted by Baldwin's publicist. For so this is this is Cambridge Union, the students' union at Cambridge University in England. Right. So Cambridge Union, the, the oldest debating society in the world, they had just marked their 150th anniversary just weeks prior to the Buckley-Baldwin debate. The union is contacted by a publicist for uh, Corgi Books, who is promoting the, the paperback release of Baldwin's third novel. So it's a book country. tour. It's a book tour. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Exactly. And so the president of the union was an undergraduate student named Peter Fullerton, says, well, I can't host a, a book event. This is a debating society. So what I can do is host a debate related to the themes of Mr. Baldwin's writings. And so the, they agreed to that. And it's sort of an interesting the sort of backstory that I was able to uncover in the Baldwin archives at the Schomburg in Harlem. What was really interesting, the kind of back and forth between the agents and the publicists and so on. They sort of agreed in principle to have Baldwin come. And then the first idea that Fullerton had was to say, you know, I'll invite somebody like Strom Thurmond, somebody who's a devoted segregationist to debate Baldwin. And, and Fullerton doesn't remember exactly what the response was, but he, know, he knows it was negative and invited Barry Goldwater, who, had, of, course, of course, voted against the Civil Rights Act and was a, 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 a different kind of skeptic of, of the Civil Rights Revolution. And so at some point, there was a, another student at, at Cambridge named Michael Tugendhat who had met Buckley in 1963 and knew enough about him to know that he was a, the, sort of the perfect person for this, this role. He was a skilled debater. He was a critic of the civil rights movement. So they contacted Buckley, who was on his annual ski vacation in Switzerland, and asked him if he would come debate. And he was not one to turn down any opportunity to debate. And he had established in print that he thought Baldwin was, as he called him, an eloquent menace. And he was eager to take him on uh, at Cambridge. How did Baldwin feel about Buckley and going up against him? So there, there isn't as much evidence of Baldwin's kind of reflections on Buckley prior to the debate that I was able to discover. There's no question that you know Buckley was on Baldwin's radar. And Buckley was a, a sort of figure that Baldwin was eager to challenge. And one of the things I, I talk about in the in the book is in 1962, Baldwin was invited onto the Open Mind television program to debate James Jackson Kilpatrick, who was one of the country's leading salesmen for segregation, a very close friend and colleague of Buckley. He was sort of one of Buckley's go-to guys on race. And it was the kind of thing where a lot of Baldwin's friends and handlers didn't want him to do it, right? You, you should not sit across a table from a segregationist. You're going to dignify his views by your presence. But Baldwin really felt an obligation to engage with people like Kilpatrick. And he actually thought that people like Kilpatrick and Buckley, they had a great deal of responsibility to bear in the racial violence, the racial nightmare. Is that something that people can watch on YouTube as well or somewhere online? Is that still out there? You know, it's a, it's a strange thing. The Open Mind has an incredible archive. You can actually watch shows going back to the 50s, but they don't seem to have this one. And so I I hope there is a recording of it. So what, what's interesting is that in the, at the Schomburg, they, Baldwin kept a complete transcript of that encounter. It's another thing that hadn't really been written about very much. And it's just this, I mean, it's an amazing, just reading it is so powerful because it's right after the battle at Ole Miss, right after James Meredith is attempting to register for classes at the University of Mississippi and all hell breaks loose. You know, there's violence. And Baldwin begins the show. They, they're welcome to the show. And Baldwin looks at Kilpatrick and says, you think there's a difference between men like you who write these sophisticated books and articles defending segregation and the people in those streets committing, you know, committing acts of violence. And he says, I hold you, sir, far more responsible than those people in those streets because they are caught in a web of delusion, this delusion of white supremacy, and you are weaving that web for purposes that have nothing to do with them. And he says, I accuse you of betraying those white people in the South. You are pursuing your own agenda for your own purposes. And so Baldwin starts out the, the, the conversation wow, that way yeah. and then proceeds to kind of play the role of kind of cross-examining Kilpatrick for the, the, you know, the duration of the show and just kind of interrogating him about his white supremacist views. It's an extraordinarily powerful encounter. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, I'm hoping with the book coming out, maybe some of these things will be uncovered in some archive. Somebody has a recording, an audio or video recording of that. All right. Until then, let's talk about this night in it's February 18th, 1965. Set the stage for us. Who is there? How is it structured? Who could see it? How public was this? So the debate, although the, you know, it came together very last minute. So the sort of wheels began turning on putting this night together in, in January 65. And the actual night of the debate is February 18th, 1965. And so you have uh, a, you know, packed, you know, the union debating hall was filled. I mean, if you watch the video, you can see there's people not only sitting in every uh, every spot on the benches and in the galleries, but they're also sitting on the floor. I mean, Buckley and Baldwin have to like walk over students as they're going. So you have mostly students. You also have guests to the union. So the students were, so many of the students that were there are sort of what they call members of the union who had a voting, they're, you know, able to vote. 
and ask questions during the debates. But the way this debate was structured was there were two uh, student debaters, one on each side. So the, the motion before the House was the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro. And so there's two student debaters. One gives a speech on each side of that motion. And then Baldwin gets up to speak and he speaks for about 24 minutes. And then Buckley gets up to speak and he speaks for about 29 minutes. And there's no exchange between the two of them, which is one of the things that is, you know, in some ways unfortunate about yes, the way it was structured. Yes. And that may have been due to some of the back backroom negotiations about what, what they were willing, what Baldwin's people especially were willing to allow to happen that night. But there, there is one thing that's left out of the BBC recording that was really fascinating to discover. It's and, edited, right? The one that you can see online. Right. So the one you can see online, the, the student speeches are edited down and then Buckley's speech is edited by about a third. And one of the things that's, that's edited out of the Buckley speech, the questions that the students asked him. So at the union, like in the House of Commons, students could stand up and the speaker had, they could call on the student to, you know, for a point of information or for a question. And so there's only one of those uh, what they called interruptions in the in the speech that you see on on YouTube. And there's actually about four or five more that are really interesting. I mean, both for the questions that are asked are really good questions, but also Buckley is a master at responding to those mm-hmm. questions in a kind of clever way that all, you know, almost always brings elicits laughter and he's able to kind of diffuse the situation. But yeah, so the, the Cambridge Union itself kept audio recordings of these debates, but they did not have the audio recording of this particular debate. They thought it was lost or destroyed. So I was able to find one of the students from that era who had an old reel-to-reel copy of the, uh, the full Buckley uh, in Baldwin's speeches, and he sent it to me from England, and I got it digitized. And so that's available for folks on the audiobook and, and the full transcripts and the, and the, as an appendix to the book itself. One of the interesting things about Buckley's speech is that he based it on a piece that was written by Gary Wills in the National Review. So this wasn't, you know, something he came up with organically. I think that might surprise people who are more familiar with Wills's later work, but most people know that he was early on protege of Buckley at the National Review. What was this piece? What did it say? Why did Buckley choose to base his talk on that? Buckley says that Wills is one of the National Review's great discoveries. Wills sends him, you know, a sample of his writing when he's very young, and Buckley sees, you know, that Wills has an incredible talent and brings him on to sort of do a lot of, like, reviews for National Review and then also to begin writing some essays about religion. And so when the Fire Next Time, of course, emerges initially. The, the bulk of it emerges in November 1962 as a long piece for the New Yorker magazine called Letter from a Region of My Mind. And when that piece comes out in late 62, the reaction is, you know, it's it's a literary sensation. You know, people are all sorts of um, literary folks are responding to it. When the book itself, The Fire Next Time, which collects that piece together with a short piece Baldwin wrote for the Progressive magazine in late 62, that book, you know, is is just this immediate bestseller. And everyone, you know, there's very few critics have a crossword to say about it. So Buckley sees an opportunity for National Review. He's already identified Baldwin as this dangerous, you know, threat. And so he says, you know, what I need to do is get somebody to write a, a sophisticated critique of Baldwin for the magazine. And he, he identifies Wills as the right person to do that. Wills is somebody who's, you know, Baldwin in, in The Fire Next Time, and that, that, that book is dealing with such huge issues, philosophical issues, religious issues. And he know, Buckley recognizes that Wills is the writer in his orbit who has the kind of skills to take Baldwin on. So, you know, Wills, you know, sets down and reads every bit of Baldwin he can get his hands on. And he writes this piece, What Color is God? And the piece itself is it's much more sophisticated than what Buckley produces at Cambridge. Mm-hmm. But it is, I mean, there's ways in which Buckley was faithful to the Wills piece. But Wills read Baldwin as somebody who was calling for an overthrow of Western civilization. You know, and Wills says things like, um, you know, Baldwin wants us to, you know, raid the libraries and burn Plato and Aristotle and the Bibles and so on. And that, to me, is a really flawed reading of what Baldwin's up to in that in that text and in the rest of his writing. But Buckley takes that and runs with it. It's, it's one of the great mysteries of the book is whether or not Buckley really ever read Baldwin. You know, mm-hmm. I don't I don't really know. I think he may have just read other people reading Baldwin and then taken that at taken what he liked and, and run with it. All right. Let's just put in another clip here of Baldwin from the debate before we talk about it. Let me put it this way, that from a very literal point of view, the harbors and the ports and the railroads of the country, the economy, especially of the southern states, could not conceivably be what it has become if they had not had and do not still have, indeed, and for so long, so many generations, cheap labor. I am stating very seriously, and this is not an overstatement, 
that I picked up the coffee. And I carried it to market. And I built the railroads. Under someone else's whip. For nothing. For nothing. So Baldwin does something very different with his portion of this debate. How would you characterize the talk that he gives? Although the union had existed for 150 years prior to this night, I'm pretty sure that there was never a speech quite like the speech that Baldwin delivered that night. Because he, you know, a lot of, you know, formal debate is this kind of combination of intellectual exercise and performance art, you know, a lot of humor injected and that sort of thing. But Baldwin arrives that night and he delivers a sermon. He delivers a Jeremiah, right? He is there uh, to say things that people don't want to hear, the the Jeremiah about white supremacy, really. And so Baldwin's speech, I think there's like three really, really important things to keep in mind with, with Baldwin's speech. One is that he wants to talk about the ways in which the doctrine of white supremacy, the impact it has on what he calls the subjugated. So he talks about the millions of details of every day that communicate to people of color that they their lives do not matter. And so Baldwin devotes a great deal of his speech to that, but he also wants to talk about the ways in which white supremacy undermines what he calls the moral lives of, of its would-be beneficiaries. So the example he gives is among the most powerful you can imagine. At that very moment, the same night of the debate, we're in the thick of the, the Selma campaign. And so Sheriff Jim Clark, Selma, Alabama, is being, you know, he's being, you know, you're seeing me on TV everywhere, you're seeing him in newspapers, brandishing his cattle prod and, and using it against men, women, and children in the streets of Alabama. And Baldwin says when Jim Clark uses that cattle prod, what's happening to his victims is ghastly, but in some ways what's happening inside of him is much, much worse. And what Baldwin is saying there is that Jim Clark is somebody who is caught up in this delusion of white supremacy, and he, every, all of his sense of, of, of value, every, his sense of meaning in the world is, is just caught up in this myth that his, his whiteness is what gives him value. And so Baldwin says that's pathetic. Like this, person, this person's life is pathetic. This is what he's clinging to for his sense of meaning. Baldwin objected to thinking about this in terms of like a black liberation, right? He might object to my using that term because this is a liberation struggle that's about all of us, right? Somebody like Jim Clark needs to be liberated from this delusion. And so Baldwin, you know, those are two major pieces. And the other major piece is expense. There's a very powerful, you know, the very powerful language he uses when he says, you know, I picked the cotton, I built the railroads. Yes. And so that is is a huge theme of his speech and just trying to draw our attention to the ways in which, you know, that our history, our history of, of racial injustice is not, you know, history is present in everything we do, Baldwin says, right? So the, the legacy where past meets present is something he really wants to draw his, you know, all those students in the international audience. He wants people to reflect on legacy and think about the ways in which our history of racial injustice is in present in everything we do. All right. There's so much in there. And I'm going to do something terrible, which is I'm going to jump right to the end, at least of the debate. Who won? Baldwin won. So Baldwin's side wins. Uh, the vote is 544 in favor of, of Baldwin's side, 144 against. So Baldwin is victorious that night in, in terms of the, of the vote. All right. A victory in that debate and in many other ways, but also obviously a subject that continues to resonate. It's amazing how contemporary so much of what they talk about in that debate still is. Nicholas, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Pamela. It's been a pleasure. Nicholas Bicola is the author of The Fire Is Upon Us, James Baldwin, William F. Buckley Jr., and The Debate Over Race in America. Last year, we did something really fun on the podcast around this same time of year, and we are doing it again. Please join us on Friday, November 22nd at the Time Center in New York City for a special live podcast announcing the 10 best books of the year. I will be there, of course, as will many of the editors at the book review and some surprise guests. We will reveal live at the podcast our 10 best books. We'll also talk about some that almost made the cut but didn't quite, some of our personal favorites, and a lot more. If you're interested in coming to the event live, you can visit timesevents.nytimes.com for tickets and details. And of course, you can hear it here on the podcast. Concepcion de Leon joins us now with some news from the literary world. Hi, Concepcion. Hi. What's new? 
In Florida, in Key West, there is a literary nonprofit called Key West Literary Seminar. And the news is that they just purchased Elizabeth Bishop's former house, the poet Elizabeth Bishop. And they bought it for $1.2 million, and mm-hmm. they plan on making it its headquarters. One interesting thing is that Elizabeth Bishop spent about a decade in her life in Key West, and she wrote her first poetry collection there, North and South. And so it really had a huge influence on her work, so it's pretty significant that they're purchasing her house. Key West kind of has a literary thing going on, right? There's a festival that regularly takes place down there. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think what it's most known for, or the literary personality that it's most known for, is Ernest Hemingway, who had a house there that's now a museum. And one of the big things that it's known for is the many, many cats that that live on the property, some of which derive from a cat that Ernest Hemingway owned. So that's pretty interesting. But yes, and, and also Judy Bloom still lives there, and Beattie. So there is quite a literary community that's really rich and, and deep there. So what are the plans for Elizabeth Bishop's former home. They commissioned something called a historic structures report. It's composed of a team of like historians, architects, engineers, and people that are going to look into the history of the house, focusing on the decade that Bishop lived there. And they're going to restore the house to the way that it looked when she was alive. And part of what they're drawing from are her letters. She wrote very, very detailed descriptions of the house. She talked about the color of the shutters. She talked about the screened-in porch that she built. And so there are a lot of detailed descriptions. And so they're sort of lucky in a way because they have a lot to go from. But they're also, like I said, commissioning this report to get a lot of information, a lot more detailed information about the layout and sort of what it looks like so that they can maintain the historical integrity of the property. I've never been to Key West, have you? I haven't. All right, let's go down there. Yeah, we have to. (laughs) And visit Elizabeth Bishop's house. (laughs) All right, Concepcion de Leon, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Saeed Jones joins us now from Boston, where he is on tour for his new book. It's called How We Fight for Our Lives, a memoir. It's reviewed this week in the book review. It also recently won the Kirkus Prize. Saeed, thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. So most people are familiar with you as a poet, perhaps as a former BuzzFeed editor, former co-host of the Twitter show AM to DM. Did you put all that aside to write this book, or were you working on it while you were doing all that? I was I was working on it while I was doing all of it, <laughs> and and I think you know I, I learned a lot in, in unexpected ways. You know I think you know being in a newsroom for six years and watching like reporters and editors you know you know navigate the ethics of telling other people's stories and writing about often really difficult experiences impacting other people. For example, that impacted how I wrote about my mother and my grandmother. Mm -hmm. Or obviously watching the conversations that I often participate in myself on Twitter. You know, though I don't talk about Trump directly, I, I certainly gesture toward kind of the big picture as I kind of see it. In retrospect, I'm kind of in awe that I was able to <laughs> to write while doing all of it. But I think the book in some ways benefited from that. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you that because I think people are always interested in how writers work, especially when they have other jobs. And you had kind of three other jobs and you, you're on Twitter as the ferocity and very active there. I mean, what was your routine like? How did you did you wake up at 4 a.m. and work on this? How did you do it? Gosh, no. I mean, you know, I, I, it changed throughout the process. I mean, one, when I sold the book. I had been working on it for several years before I sold it and before I got to BuzzFeed, right? So I had, I'd written like what I call kind of like the tinpole chapters of the book, you mm-hmm. know, the first chapter, Memphis 1999, and we just see with my grandmother, you know, Phoenix, Arizona. I had that material and that was important. Um, and then when I sold the book, I went on book leave for four months in 2015. So that was hugely important. And then, yeah, I mean, and then it was just kind of, you do your best. <laughs> Right when you can. My editor-in-chief at BuzzFeed News, Ben Smith, was really supportive. So, you know, at one point, my book editor, we decided to expand the book's timeline by like five or six years. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, because then what I had been able to do in terms of scrambling in writing sessions, it was like no longer possible. I was like, I can't. I don't know what to do. And and Ben, we changed my work schedule. I was Mm -hmm. doing the same amount of work, but for about six months in... I think 2016, early 2016, I was working three or four day weeks and I was using those long weekends to, to go to coffee shops and I was miserable, but <laughs> that's how I was able to write what essentially became the last act of the book. Why did you decide to do this? Did you always want to write a memoir? 
I think I knew I wanted to write about my past. I think a lot of poets have a, a special relationship with the personal essay as a form. And so I, I knew that I would share essays and, and, and talk about those experiences in some way. It took me a while before I felt comfortable calling the book a memoir, before and after I sold it. <laughs> what did you want to call it? <laughs> you know, it's so funny, writers, like, you know, we always try to, like, talk around what's going on because we're so nervous. So I think I was, like, linked essays, you right. know, which is like, it's just, girl, just call it a memoir. Right. You know, <laughs> my agent kind of had to level with me that I was scared. And I was anxious and and that there are reasons for that. But she was just kind of like, listen, you can't be scared. (laughs) Like you're going to have to be confident. What scared you? You know, you know, it's deeply narcissistic to write a memoir. It just is. It's self-centered. And I've been an editor and you certainly are as well. And, you know, you see books that are just all they are are narcissism. And um, and often they're by straight white men, right? And mm-hmm. and so I, I I was very aware of that as a reader, and I was nervous. I wanted to make sure that I was earning readers' time if I was going to call it a memoir, because that you know I just think it's it's important, and I love the form so much. So it just it took me a little bit of encouragement and time to feel like okay, no, I, I see the story, and then I got certainly I. I, I became more confident about that as I started writing it. Well, you, you were scared, obviously, about writing about yourself. Were you also frightened about writing about other people, and in particular, your mother and your grandmother, who you write about a lot in the book? Actually, I wasn't scared about writing. I was scared about, like, being a jerk, you know, and, 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 and being egotistical. I think sometimes you can read people's writing, and you can, like, see the delusion, and mm-hmm. you're like, is this writer aware of? So that's what I was nervous about, but I'm always willing to go there in terms of, of sex and anxiety and, and depression. Like, I'm always willing to, like, kind of lay it all out. I was worried about writing about my family. That, mm-hmm. was, that was the huge, and like I mentioned, like, working in a newsroom and, and the ethics of telling other people's stories. Yes. Oh, my gosh. That was, it requires just tremendous judiciousness, and, and I hope I got it right. Yeah, that was an ongoing challenge, and that that was different in every part of the book. (laughs) How did you approach that? Did you have people whose lives it touched, you know, in your family and extended family look at it and make sure they were okay, or how did you deal with that? No. (laughs) (laughs) I I studied, I read a lot about other memoir writers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I paid, and Mary Carr, her work is just really important to me. Yes. Mm -hmm. I read a lot about, and it's great, right, because, you know, those, like, the Liars Club and Cherry have been out for years. So, you know, it was helpful to kind of see over the course of her career how Mary Carr feels about her decisions. And I kind of lined up pretty closely with her. You know, the book is a product of memory, and memory is a part of identity. And it is an unreliable narrator, right? And that's a part of the story. So I decided that I didn't want to interview people. But, you know, I talked to my grandmother a couple of times, mostly to allay her concerns, and she just trusted me. And people knew the book was coming. Mm -hmm. So I would, every once or twice a year while working on the book, I would, like, mention it while on the phone and just be like, you know, I'm working on it. But as I told my grandmother, I was like, listen, I've got to go there. But you've changed a lot, and so have I. And I'm going to really work to to show that. If I was her, I don't know how I would handle (laughs) having such a difficult moment be written about by someone else. But she never told me not to write it. She never even expressed anxiety. She just would always listen and go, okay. It was kind of incredible. So I really tried to honor that in the writing. And that's why, like, for example... I'm thinking of an example. In the last act of the book, when my mom has a heart attack and is in a coma and and then certainly the funeral, if you reread it, you will notice I try to be very intentional in terms of descriptive details. And so, like, I was was very deliberate in terms of being like, should the reader see Saeed react to this instant of bad news? Is it necessary for them to see my grandmother or my uncle, right? Like, you, you see my grandmother at the funeral, and that was like, I was like, that's it. You know, I was very protective. I remember my edit, my editor kind of asking for a few more moments, and I pushed back, you know. So that, that was an example of just trying to be candid and truthful, but also thoughtful. Right. It's a very candid memoir. Let's cut right to that moment that you, you mentioned, I think, a couple times now with your grandmother. Tell us yeah. that story. 
my mom raised me as a single parent in Louisville, Texas, which is a, a suburb of Dallas, and she practiced Nichiren Buddhism. She chanted Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. If you watched the Tina Turner biopic, as I watched countless times as a kid, that's, <laughs> that's the faith I grew up with. And the rest of our family is, you know, very Christian of different denominations and very passionate about it. It is a central aspect of their daily lives. And so, you know, it was just incredibly divisive for my family when I was growing up that my mom was raising me in this way. And I was ambivalent about all of it, I should say, um, about, you know, I, I was like, all organized religion seems like irritating to me. But my mom would send me to Memphis to stay with my grandmother in the summers, as a lot of single parents do. And the summer that I was like 13 or 14 was kind of the, I think, kind of the last stand as mm-hmm. my grandmother saw and I was used to going to church with her once a week when I go home. That was just kind of the expectation, and I didn't totally mind it. And then that summer, she started going to a new church in the suburbs. It was mostly white as opposed to the Black Baptist church I'd grown up with, so that was a culture shock. And then they were just, like, very evangelical. And and so the summer culminates with us going to church. I think we, I swear we were going, like, four days a week. It, it, in some ways, it felt like it was all, it was like all I did was I read Toni Morrison that summer, and I went to church. <laughs> like, I felt like all that happened. And towards the end of the summer, I think the tensions were building. I was frustrated and making my frustrations known. She was frustrated that I was pushing back. We were at one of those evening church meetings, and she took me to the front of the room and went up to the pastor and said, this is my grandson, Saeed. His mother is Buddhist. As she had been introducing me to literally everyone at this church all summer long. That's the only way she would introduce me. And he just, like, nodded. And I thought he was going to start praying that I would see the light and all of this kind of stuff, whatever. And right when I started to roll my eyes, I realized that instead he was saying things about my mother. And he was like, you know, make her suffer, God. And I remember that's when I kind of snapped back to focus. Because mm-hmm. I was at the moment, I was just like a teenager embarrassed to be at the front of the room. That's really what I was thinking about. I realized he was saying, God, put all your plagues and your, your ailments and illnesses on her, make her suffer, so that I guess she will realize she's gone down the wrong path and bring her son back to the church with her. Teenagers aren't right about everything, duh. But how I felt then is exactly how I feel now. Mm-hmm. What a distorted, disturbing, really messed up perception of faith. Yes. This man, I'd never spoken to him that whole summer, and he certainly hadn't met my mother. So there was no knowledge or certainly no compassion. And what makes it such a, I think, a central part of the book and such a sad part of the book is that my grandmother was doing it out of love. There's a lot of silences. We kind of talk about it without using nouns or verbs, if you can believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, she's expressed regret. And I think she believed she was doing the right thing. And I am really interested as a writer in those moments when you can have two people in the space and no one is the antagonist. Right. Like, what does it mean when everyone is doing their best and being proactively loving, as I believe my grandmother was trying to be, and it still results in tremendous hurt? And the events of that night changed the course of both of our lives, as you see in the book, right? I mean, you then see basically an entire decade of how that moment creates this rift and this tremendous silence among all the other ongoing silences. I mean, I never told my mother about it. She might have found out in another way, I don't know, but I never spoke to her about it. And when my mom then has a heart attack the night before Mother's Day, and I show up in Memphis and she's in the ICU and I'm looking at my grandmother and she's looking at me, we didn't say it. But of course, all either of us were thinking about was that night in 1999. You write about a number of really difficult things and moments in the book from homophobia that you experienced growing up, black, gay, Buddhist on top of it in Texas, (laughs) um, to a really terrible physical assault with a lover in college. Was it difficult for you to kind of relive those moments or did you tap into that easily? How how was it writing about those? Interestingly, it wasn't difficult actually to write about those moments. Part of it is, you know, my career at this point. So by the time I sold the book, for example, I was working as an LGBT editor at BuzzFeed News, right? And and then a culture editor, which is to say I was just 
seeing from the perspective of a newsroom the pervasiveness of this violence. And so I just, I think seeing all of that and, and then like, you know, certainly talking to people, reading about the epidemic of violence against black trans women, for example. I don't know. I think when I sat down to write about those moments in the book, I was like, eh, I'm not so special. And I need to, to figure out how to write this in a way to connect it to the context I'm witnessing. Because I didn't want readers to say, oh, this is, this is so unique. This is so isolated. I want readers to go, oh, wow. Does that explain the title, The We and How We Absolutely. Fight for Our Lives? Yes. Yeah, that is that was that was the intention. Part of it is it's a nod to my mother, you know, mm-hmm. my grandmother, that they're fighting for their lives. But yeah, I, I wanted from the very beginning to make it clear that this book isn't a vacation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't think I, I really don't think my story is special. I, I was tweeting this morning that when I'm done with this tour in about a week, I will have gone to I think it's like 19 stops. Wow. And everywhere I've gone, people are suffering so tremendously. Oh my gosh. I am so like my, my Twitter DMs and my Instagram DMs and, and the notes. Sometimes it's overwhelming, but I also just feel like that's why I wrote the book the way I did and tried to frame it the way I did, because I think I just intuited that what's more useful now instead of memoirs that are just all about me, woe is me, it's like, woe is us. You talk about suffering, a Buddhist concept, also compassion. There's a lot of compassion in the book, even in these moments with the physical assault, for example, with your grandmother, where it seems like you're constantly making an effort not to demonize, but to kind of look at what's going on with your antagonists at any moment and try to understand them. Do you attribute that to your Buddhist upbringing or where does that come from? I think it, it is part of my upbringing. Like one concept, for example, that was really important to me, even though I don't practice Nietzschean Buddhism now, I think the philosophy of it changed me in a lot of ways. There's this idea of esho funi, which means oneness of self and environment. Mm-hmm. And, and that can be the self in the natural environment. That could be the self in your kind of human environment, whether it's like your workplace or your community. And then the, the third level of that is like the kind of national environment. My relationship to empathy comes from trying to understand certainly how I feel, you know, what I know about myself, but also how how am I living in concert with these other people? And, And that's not about letting people off the hook, but I think it's just a little bit more useful as a writer to push the reader to go, yeah, this was awful. Okay, let's think about why it happened. Mm-hmm. Let's think about the systems that we're all living in, right, that, that can create these situations. Because that is the moment where a reader can go, oh, whether or not they look or live like me, they are living in the same system, right? They're still living in the same America as I am. And so that allows, I think, the reader then to have hopefully some tools to help them with their own fight. And I think that's why, I mean, as I've been out meeting with readers, the audience for the book is really diverse because I tried to make space for for our similarities and differences. You've written all this out, a lot of pain in here, now toured through 19 cities, I think three more to go. How does it feel now that it's all out, it's on the page, the book is there with readers and you've done all that hard work? One is just a tremendous relief. I mean, every single book feels like it's a make or break situation when you're writing it. You're like, am I going to survive this? Um, and, and, and that's regardless of subject matter. But yeah, certainly, I mean, you know, there was a moment, I, I think in 2016, where I was writing about my mom in the hospital, and I was crying so hard, I had to have a friend come get me. And I was like, I just don't know if I'm going to survive this book. And I survived it, right? And, and so that is, I'm really proud of that accomplishment. And of course, it's, it's wonderful that readers are identifying with it and connecting with it and, and the critical praise. It's wonderful. The entire thrust of the book is, is my I fight to feel that my whole self will ever be welcomed in America, right? Like, that's the entire kind of journey of the book. Mm-hmm. Will I be able to be myself here? And to have the story welcomed and embraced by readers, I think, is a pretty emphatic yes. And it's a wonderful feeling. Well, we will end there. Congratulations <laughs> so much on the book, all the critical praise, the feedback thank from you. readers. Saeed, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for this conversation. Saeed Jones's new book is How We Fight for Our Lives a memoir.
Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Tina Jordan, Greg Coles, and John Williams. Hi, guys. Hey, Pamela. Pamela. All right, Tina, let's start with you. All right, so I'm reading something unusual this week, for me, anyway. I'm reading a book called Mrs. Delaney, A Life by Clarissa Campbell Orr. And it's a biography of an 18th century collage artist told largely through the letters that she wrote. She was from a very well-connected family in Wiltshire. She endured an early terrible marriage to this to an overweight alcoholic who finally died in his sleep, at which point she wrote, Finding myself free from many vexations soon brought me to a state of tranquility I had not known for years. <laughs> Grieving <laughs> widow. Right. Her second marriage was very happy. Her letters are full of gossip about family, friends, news, politics, the royals, books. She was an avid reader. But when she was in her 70s, she was sitting in her drawing room one day and she noticed a similarity between the petal of a geranium and a scrap of red paper next to her. And so she had some sort of, I don't know, just an idea. And she picked up her sewing scissors and started to cut up the paper. And she became a collage artist. She used flour and water and snippets of colored paper, which she pasted on black paper. She first came to my attention about 10 years ago when Yale had an exhibition of some of her work. So all her work is collected in something called the Flora Delanica, which is at the British Museum. It's so fragile, it's not on display. You have to ask to see it, and I suppose you have to like have some reason to see it. But when I tell you they're collages, that really doesn't do justice to them. A single flower can have hundreds and hundreds of pieces of paper layered on. They're astonishing to look at. have you been there and seen them in person? Yale had a few of them. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the whole thing. They're 10 notebooks. So Yale had a few of them 10 Mm -hmm. years ago, and that's what I saw. She She wrote to her niece, I've invented a new way of imitating flowers, which I just love. Mm-hmm. But I'm also I'm a sucker for anything letters related to. I love epistolary novels. This is basically a biography told through her letters. She just sounds like she was fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I would love to have one of these collages, you know, hanging on a wall in my house. However. Someday. Someday. <laughs> John, you're reading something also not new. Not new, and something that I've been meaning to read pretty much since it was published in 2003, and it won the Pulitzer Prize in 2004. It's a novel called The Known World by Edward P. Jones. Oh, yeah, that's a novel I've been wanting to read, too. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where you go through phases, and sometimes I've been wanting more to read it than other times. But I I finally picked it up and said, now is the time. And I was at HarperCollins, the publisher. I was working there when it was published by them, an imprint there. And I remember there just being a lot of love in the house for this book and a lot of admiration for it it and for good reason. The book has a very easy elevator pitch, unfortunately, but it's much richer than that. The elevator pitch is that it's a novel by an African-American author about slavery in the 19th century, and it is about a slave owner who himself is black. He, he grew up on a plantation, and his owner really liked him and sort of thought of him as a protege of sorts. And when this slave, whose name is Henry Townsend, the main character, when he's bought out of slavery by his parents, he eventually starts buying slaves of his own. And he has eventually, I think, maybe 30 or more. And the book opens with his death. It then is very fluid in terms of how it goes back and forth in time. There are a lot of secondary and tertiary characters. It's not an easy book to put down and immediately get back into if you if you let it go for too long. So I think you need to kind of get into its flow. It's beautifully written. It's very humane. There's a weird sort of lack of anger in the book. And it is obviously about things that are horrific, but the people in it remain really, really complicated, the people on all sides of it. Henry's parents, especially his father, I'm about halfway through the book now, and his father has just, in this very dramatic scene, kind of kicked him out of his house. He said, I I never thought that the first person I kicked out of my house for owning other people would be my own son, but get out. I think he strikes him and knocks him to the floor. I read this morning, actually, this this kind of incredible and fascinating profile that Rachel Swarns of The Times wrote in 2003 when the book had just been a finalist for the National Book Award. This is before it won the Pulitzer. And Jones grew up in poverty. His mother was illiterate. And she talks about – Rachel in the piece talks about how uh, these rapturous reviews, when they first started coming in, he had no car, no cell phone, 
no fax machine, which I guess at the time was <laughs> something. And, and he decided against buying a cell phone, fearing it could seem too pretentious. And, and he was in his mid-50s and I think had, had spent a long time working for a, like a tax trade magazine or something and had been homeless himself when he was a young man. And there's something so old-fashioned about the book. It's a very godlike, omniscient narrator. And so, you know, I think Jones is, I, I guess, someone who didn't have a phone or a car. He, I think he gets back into that sort of 19th century feel very naturally and, and beautifully. He published another collection of short stories two years after this, and then he hasn't published another book since. So I think we've sure. reached out to him. Hasn't he? Has he reviewed for us? He has not reviewed for us. We have reached out to him. He's he's not an easy person to get in touch with. Yeah, and he's he's just kind of absent from from the scene, as it were. I'm trying to imagine a world in which everyone thinks it's too pretentious to phone. <laughs> <a bone. laughs> yeah, he's nearing seventy now, so I, I hope there's another book in him. But it's it's fantastic, and even though I'm only halfway through, I'm, I'm I'm trying to be leisurely enough about it to really luxuriate in it because the prose is very old-fashioned and, and lovely. Greg, what about you? You're reading something brand new. Yeah, which is unusual for me. I'm usually reading things either well before they come out for work or else I'm doing kind of what you're doing right now with the Edward P. Jones. It's catching up on things that, that passed me by at the time that they came out. But right now I'm reading... The novel Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson, which was just reviewed on our cover by Taffy Brodesser Ackner. So it's kind of the it book of the moment. I don't read a lot of it books of the moment. It's a very (laughs) funny novel about a woman, kind of a a down at loose ends, southern woman living at home with her mother. She had a, a moment where it seemed that everything might break right for her, and she won a scholarship to a prestigious private school. And while she's there... She has this kind of fraught relationship with her roommate and takes the blame when her roommate is caught with drugs. And she's kicked out of the school and they stay in touch over the years. And now the roommate is married to a senator who has big political hopes. And does he want to enter the Democratic field? (laughs) (laughs) Um, He has hopes that, that he will become secretary of state. And he has twin children from a previous marriage whose mother has just died and these children are now coming to live with him as a result and they have a propensity to burst into flame whenever they get <laughs> agitated <It's>, literally <laughs> to literally burst into flame it's a, like spontaneous combustion <laughs> you know it was one of those oddities of scheduling in terms of uh, the print book review that this cover was also our children's book <laughs> issue um, so we had kids burning up on the cover I was the editor who assigned it to Taffy, and when I described the book to her, she looked at me for about (laughs) five seconds, and she said, really? (laughs) But she was all in on on this one. Oh, she loved it, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Reading it as a father myself, it takes me back to the— The times when you wanted your kids to burst into flame. (laughs) No, it's—I mean, my— oldest, my son, if I can tell a tale on him, uh, <laughs> used to just have a hard time containing his emotions and in public. And, you know, it's, it's not quite bursting into flame, but it's bursting into kind of emotional extravagance, becoming a scene, the center of yeah. attention wherever you are. And the patience that it takes to work through that with your young children and to give them coping mechanisms for the world coming at you. And that's part of what this woman, Lillian, who's the narrator of this novel, has to do with these children. She develops a real bond with them very quickly. There's a lot of sweet parenting stuff in there, even though she's not their parent. She, She becomes their surrogate parent. And there's just a lot of real bonding in there that speaks to me as a father. There's also a lot about female friendship, the relationship between Lillian and these twins' stepmother, Madison. There's a lot of class stuff in there because Madison comes from tremendous wealth. She's heiress to a department store fortune. She's married to this senator who himself comes from tremendous wealth. It reminded me a little bit of Who is Rich by Matthew Clam, which also has this sense of an outsider coming into a very privileged world and realizing, wow, you know, it's completely different from anything that we're used to. It sounds like it also really combines like a comic tone with a more down-to-earth, like the parental bonding and the like. Yeah, a well, softer, there's a real more, sweetness yeah. to it. I'm just over halfway through at this point. I know from Taffy's review that there is a turn in the last third of it that feels inevitable when you reach it. Hmm. Um, I'm not there yet, so I'm trying to guess what it might yeah. be. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's very comic, and, and there are moments that I really laugh out loud at, just kind of passing observations, either about parenting or 
about life in general. The kids are big readers. And when they come to stay with Madison in the guest house on the senator's estate, the house is filled with Nancy Drew books. and That must you know, be taking just, you back to all my Hardy Boys books lined yeah. up with their blue spines. And she says, can we read all these? And, and Madison says yes. And she's like, we love to read, but we were at our grandparents' house and they only had books about World War II. There were four <laughs> different books about Hitler. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not, that's so right. <laughs> Pamela, what about you? What are you reading this week? I'm also reading a new book, which is uncharacteristic of me. It's Megan Daum's new essay collection, The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars. And it's different for me in another way in that this is a book where I kind of agree with a lot of what she's saying, So, which I don't often like to read books that I thoroughly agree with because it's just you're not really learning anything new. But she is a really good writer, a really strong essayist, and very persuasive in this book, kind of interrogating her own assumptions and then flipping them and, 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 and re-interrogating them. And the cover kind of gives you a sense of just how into various controversial issues that she goes because on the cover it says microaggression, toxic, fascist, rape culture, triggered, badass, violent speech, identity politics, gaslighting, patriarchy, privilege. There's like kind of nowhere that she doesn't go in this book. All of that is in the subtitle? No, no, no. They're just... <laughs> That's all in the art. Oh, the design, the design. And it's interesting because I she has a great way with titles. I think I pick this up mostly because of the title because I'm often talking about the problem with everything. Um, my problem with everything is probably a little bit different from her problem with everything. But the last book that I read by Megan Daum, I also read because of the title. Um, and that book was not one of her most well-known books, but it was Life Would Be Perfect If I Lived in That House, which is something I've certainly have thought to some degree or another before. So I just finished that book. I want to ask all of you a question courtesy of or by way of one of our listeners, Edward W. Whalen. He emailed me back in September, and he asked a question that I always want to ask all of you because I'm a very slow reader. But he said, just wanted to make a suggestion, one concentrated segment on how the hell you all managed to read so much for fun while doing your time-consuming jobs and presumably having lives to live. And he's wrong on the last part, <laughs> at least in my case. But, uh, you know, John, I w- as you were talking about the Edward P. Jones book, which is not short, and you were saying, like, you wanted to actually read it more slowly and look in it. I mean, I really could not read more slowly if I tried. So how do you read everything you do? Well, I am a fast reader, which is, I'm not like a speed reader, but I probably read a little bit more quickly than I'd prefer. And it's just hard for me to slow down. I don't down. have any sympathy at all. Yeah. I mean, well, part of that I think was, was by nature and part of it was when I was in publishing, you sort of had to read, you know, manuscripts that were submitted sometimes very quickly because they wanted to know what you thought. Or if we thought that other houses were going to be bidding on them, you wanted to have an opinion pretty quick. So, you know, you take home a 300 50-page manuscript and and be expected to read it in 36 hours, 24 hours. And obviously, you're not <laughs> reading for great depth at that point, but it gives me a sense of moving the pages. For me, it's just there are different kinds of lives. You know, you, you joked about not having a life. I have a social life and I go out and do things, but I don't have kids. And I think that that just gives me all my time pretty much. And so I read, you know, on the subway coming to work, I read at home at night sometimes. I read on the weekends sometimes for hours at a time, just go to a cafe or something and or the park if the weather's nice and read. There, there's no real trick to it. I just, I do it all the time. All right, Tina, you do have kids, but if anyone reads as fast as John, it's probably you. Oh, faster. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. When I was five years old and was reading I famously in family lore, my mother used to take me to the library every week. We were on our way home and we had not gotten home from the library when I announced I had read all the books I had just checked out. <laughs> and she didn't believe me, so she took the books and read them and quizzed me. And sure enough, I had read the books. We believe you. So I don't really I, I don't really know. I just like started reading fast from the very beginning. That's all I can tell you. Do you read quickly, Greg? I don't. Well, you know, it's different for work from my home reading, as John was was describing about publishing. I read very quickly for work, and there's a, a certain amount of dipping in and getting the the sound of something, the sense of what a writer is doing. But when I read in the wild, as it were, I, I'm about forty pages an hour. That's what I was before I took this job. I, 
I don't know if it's now slower than that because I'm burdened with other things or if it's faster because I've, I've developed the habit of it. I will say it took me about two and a half years to get through Ulysses. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> well, if it, it took you two and a half years to get through Ulysses. But one thing that I think we do need to mention here is that every day without fail, Greg gets Queen Bee on the New York Times Spelling Bee game. It's deeply upsetting to you're, you're everyone. You're too generous. That's, that's not the case. <laughs> Almost every day. Do you have any explanation for this? <laughs> Pamela is going to burst into flames. This, this that's is right. not acceptable. I'm a child. <laughs> I, on my way home from the library once, I said, I've got Queen Bee. <laughs> and my family didn't believe it. No, um, I, I have no explanation for it, except that my mind has always, I, it might be a, a form of dyslexia. I look at street signs and break them down into anagrams right away. It's I'm, I'm always kind of rearranging letters. And so Queen Bee, or Spelling Bee, that, that puzzle, really speaks to a way that my mind works. I look at a word jumble, and I'm immediately starting to assemble the, the pieces. It's almost like a mathematical yeah, thing, yeah, like musical. Yeah. My dad had an incredibly weird habit that I'll tell you about off air, because it's actually too complicated and people wouldn't believe it. Oh, no, now <laughs> I'm going to get letters. Now I'm going to get all kinds well, of emails it, it, saying, I want to know what John's dad's thing was. Well, my dad was was a big reader, but he was also kind of a, he, he did have a mathy brain for someone who didn't really do it for a living, but he, he and he read a lot. He would read a paragraph and he was good with percentages, so he would calculate the number of words in a paragraph that had I's or J's, dotted letters in them, <laughs> as a percentage of the paragraph in everything he read. <laughs> Books, newspaper articles, billboards. So if he passed a billboard that, you know, was four words long with a slogan and one of the words was John, he would say that's 25% in his brain. And then he would just do that constantly. You know, my little trick is so much less impressive, and I didn't even know that it was a trick. I just thought everyone could do it. But as you all know, when people come into my office to talk about assigning books, they'll usually come with something written on a page. And one of the things written is a list of suggested reviewers. And I will read it upside down Uh-oh. and know what what everything that they're going to say ahead of time. <laughs> and I guess everyone doesn't have that skill. No, if, upside if, you, down. if you can do it quickly and easily, I think that's a skill. It, it's yeah. like, it, it's like it, not that exciting a skill is what you're saying. No, so no, it's no, a I, micro skill. No, I'm saying it is a skill. It's not something that everyone can do. Can you do it? I think with a lot of time, I can do a, can... I can do it a little bit. I think I maybe maybe if I read my books upside down, I, was about I would to say, read if we as ever quickly see a as you of do. Holding a book upside down, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not really reading it. All right, let's run down the titles that we talked about today. Tina, I read Mrs. Delaney: A Life by Clarissa Campbell Orr. Nothing to see here by Kevin Wilson. I'm reading The Known World by Edward P. Jones. And I read Megan Downs' The Problem with Everything. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back. Not right away, but I do. The Book Review Podcast is produced by the great Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with a major assist from my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.